Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can be here. We thank you for each other and we thank you for your word. And as we think again about our purpose and committing afresh to you, help us to understand that you've got something for us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love fresh starts. Uh, They're always good, even if they're nerve-wracking, contemplating, making them. Uh, Sometimes they're forced upon us unwillingly, but invariably uh, they're really, really helpful and great. Uh, One of the things we do at home, uh, if there's been a really horrible start to the day and everyone's just at each other's throats and tired and grumpy, is Dad, me, will call for a reset. Everyone back to bed. We're starting again. And uh, we all pile into the girls' room, because they're all in one room at the moment, and uh, five of us in three beds, that's kind of fun. Uh, and I think you've got to go to sleep. We're going to start the day again, and there's a lot of giggling and uh, fake snoring with eyes closed. And I get up and say, right, good morning, good to see you. And it's amazing that uh, the, the change in the mood and how everyone relates, it's a circuit breaker, it's a fresh start. Uh, fresh starts give us the opportunity to reassess, to refocus, to reevaluate, and recommit to a purpose. You move house and suddenly a whole lot of stuff gets chucked out that had just been sitting there. You're like, I don't want to move that. And so in the bin it goes. Uh, and it's good. And you get there and the kitchen's all sorted out. And the things that don't get unpacked, well, if they're still not unpacked in a year's time, you can just put them in the bin because they obviously don't need them. Uh, and so it's good. It's a clean start. Everything is in its rightful place. When you change jobs, uh, you, you start with a clean desk. And, you know, all those, you know, niggly relationships that were sort of going sour or just to become too accustomed, that's all new now. You get to start again. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking through what this fresh start for church is going to look like. We're coming out of COVID hibernation. We've got new facilities here and uh, at the other services, at least, so many new people have joined in the last three months. It's incredible. It's wonderful. Uh, and people have changed the service times that they go to. Uh, and so it's like new congregations uh, and everyone's getting to know each other. And so what a great time to be thinking through what we want to be and what we want to do as a church together to make a fresh start. Or more important to think through is what God wants us to be and do as his church. And we've said above all else that God wants us to be a worshipping church, a worshipping church. Uh, by that, we don't mean having a worship band. Uh, thank you, Garen will be really happy about that. Uh, you may or may not have singing, but the scriptures mean by a worshipping church, a church that's devoted to God, that lives for his glory, that loves being his people and has our mindset shaped by him, not by the world in opposition to him, living out his purposes for us. Offer yourselves uh, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship, Romans 12. Last week we thought about making a fresh start in prayer, that God wants us to be a praying church, reliant on him for everything, all right, thankful to him, calling on him to do his work, trusting ourselves to him in dependence, asking God to honour himself, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. But today we're considering the fact that God's got something very particular for his church to do, a reason that in fact that he has gathered us together, a reason that he has not taken us 
to glory yet. I mean, he saved us for an eternity with him. Why not just take us there now? But we are left here and we're left here as a church, his church, to be his ambassadors, to deliver a message from our king to a world in desperate need of it. We are to be a witnessing church. We are a disciple-making church, an evangelistic church. Think of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And if I can get this to work, we won't do so much Bible flipping because I'll have it on the screen. Yep, I don't know if you can read. Can you read that? Uh, Anyway, Uh, Great Commission, the last thing that Jesus says to his friends and his followers. He's got them all together in one place on the mountain and he's got one last thing to tell them. What's it going to be? What is so important that he has to impress upon his people before he goes? Is it that everything's going to be okay? No. Is that he prefers pipe organs to guitars or vice versa? No. That to give them rules on how to run church AGMs and have a whole lot of church administration. Hey, AGMs on today, I've been thinking about that. <laughs> no. What does he say? He came near to them, verse 18, and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you belong to Jesus, what is life about now that he's conquered the grave and reigns as king? Making disciples. What is he sending his church to do? Make disciples. Why is he with us to the end of the age? To make disciples. One of the, uh, Think of the Apostle Peter. He was there that day on the mountain. He heard it and he got it. He writes his letters to the scattered churches abroad uh, and he explains the church's purpose for being. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We're, we're a royal priesthood. What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people and the people to God. But we collectively are the priesthood, right? There's a priesthood of all believers to a world out there. Or he says we exist to, to proclaim the praises of God. Now, what does that mean? What's praise? You know, he's not talking about mayonnaise, right? When he talks about praise, he's not talking about music. You know, you can, you know people talk about praise and worship music, but that's not it either. Although you can sing someone's praises, But what does that mean, to sing someone's praises? It means to tell other people how great this person is, isn't it? If I sing Aaron's praises, you know, when he was mayor of Campbelltown, you should have seen the the budget and the parks and amazing. Uh, I I don't know, I wasn't around in that time, so uh, I don't know if that's really what happened or not. But, you know, you love a band or some piece of music, so you really should buy this album. Praise is advertising, right? It's selling someone to someone else or to everyone else who listen. You know, you need to meet them. They're terrific. Simon Gillum, you should hear him 
teach the Bible. And you can. Church camp in a few weeks' time. You can come down to Cairo Ridge. It's going to be great. And God's purpose in building his church is that we might praise him, that we might tell everyone out there how good he is, how kind, how wonderful, to tell a world that's still in darkness that they can find light and hope in the only King and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And in fact, what's the only reason that God hasn't returned to wrap up this world, which he has promised one day to do? Why is he still waiting before he sends Jesus back and and destroys the elements in fire? Well, one reason only, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. The only reason that God has not ended the injustice and the pain and the misery of this world, the only reason he has given more time is because he's patiently giving more opportunity for people to hear the gospel, to come to their senses and to give their lives to Jesus Christ. It's the only reason. And that's what every church should be about. As we worship our Father in heaven, a church devoted to God is on about the business that he's left us with, that of making disciples, of evangelism. And when you think about it, Sharing the gospel, making disciples, evangelists, whatever you want to call it, is really the only thing we can do better here on earth than we can in heaven. You pondered everything else will be better in heaven, won't it? Right? We'll have purer fellowship there. We'll have purer lives there. We'd be closer to each other, closer to our heavenly Father. There'd be more joy there. And God would do each of us the power of God by taking us to be with himself now, taking us to heaven All the problems of life, the worries, the stress, the lockdowns, the masks, the suffering, the angst, the fear of the unknown, the uneasiness about the future, all of that would be gone if he just took us now. But he doesn't. And the reason we're still here is because he has bestowed this enormous privilege and responsibility upon us of being his representatives, his agents, sharing his news, being his ambassadors, in order to help people come to him and start a new life in him and then grow in that relationship. We've received from our Father a ministry, a ministry of reconciliation. And I want to take us to that second reading in 2 Corinthians 5, which is one of my favourite passages in the Scriptures, to start to tease out what that means and what it looks like, not just for us as individuals but as a church, to be about this business to fulfil God's purpose for us on earth as his ambassadors. We have a ministry of reconciliation and we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And it's in that reading in 2 Corinthians 5, I think it was page 1025, really, really helpful to follow along in the Pew Bibles. And he starts with motivation. Why should we want to be in this ministry of reconciliation with God? At the start, he's just talking about how good it will be to go to heaven, right? to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, we've got something here on earth. Why? What's going to drive us? What's going to help us when we're feeling scared or inadequate in ourselves? Well, there's two parts of the motivation. They're flip sides really of the same coin. The first one is the fear of God. That's not something that's entirely popular in our world 
not even entirely popular within the church to talk about. But look at verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Now, it's not that Paul's afraid for himself as he writes that. He's not thinking, if I don't share Jesus, then I'm going to hell. Right? That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses are out there doing it. Right? They're scared for their own salvation. They're not scared for you. But Paul's just explained the joy that he's looking forward to in going to be with Jesus, in going home to be with God. He's looking forward to glory. In the last chapter, he says, you know, we have this weight of eternal glory that, that makes everything that's happening to us now pass into insignificance. And so he's not afraid for himself. Who's he afraid for, though? Well, he's afraid for others. With good reason. The very last thing he says in verse 10 is, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And the Bible makes it very, very clear that our default status is sinners. By nature, we are sinners. Everyone's a sinner. It's in their makeup. By action, they are sinners, living opposed to God, whether in ignorance or deliberately. By heart, they're sinners because they don't want a life that's all about God first. And that means that everyone by nature is alienated from God, ripped apart from him, and in his holiness and justice, God has a day of wrath in store for those who live apart from him. And it might seem a terrible thing to say, but it's terribly true that there is hell to pay for sin. Jesus talked about it constantly. Right, You're in danger of the fires of hell without him, without God. We might be tempted to think that COVID-19 is the worst virus that the world has ever faced. It's not. And it's not Ebola virus, as horrific as that is. You bleed from every orifice in your body. Nor is the worst one hepatitis C or even HIV. The most deadly virus is the S-I-N virus. Sin kills everything it infects. And not just in time, but in eternity. Not just physically, but spiritually. And while there's no cure for any of those other viruses, HIV, Ebola, COVID, maybe vaccines for some of them, but there's, there is a cure for the S-I-N virus. Now, I can't imagine that if someone were to discover a cure for COVID, not just a vaccine, but discover the cure, that they wouldn't be shouting it from the rooftops. And that's the point, isn't it? Since we know what it is to fear God, we try to persuade people. We have the cure. We have the answer. And it's not one vaccine amongst many. There's one cure, and it's Jesus Christ. There can be peace now for anyone who will come to him. And we need to be clear that without him, there is no hope. The result of a Christless life is a hellish eternity. Let us sink in. Can you feel the weight of that? The result of a Christless life is a hellish eternity. It's an awful reality to face, but it's the case that without Christ, your neighbour, your parents, your colleagues, your children, your grandchildren... Uh, might be going there. And so fear is, is one side of the motivation. 
But it's the flip side, which I think gives Paul his real energy. It's his real motivator. It's what gets him up in the morning. You see it in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Everyone wants to be loved, don't they? Sometimes they want to be left alone, but they want to be loved. They search for love and relationship and satisfaction in all kinds of ways. But here is someone who offers more love than you could ever experience in a human relationship. I know that Alison loves me. She loves me a lot. She must do. She stayed married to me. But, but I know for certain that Jesus loves me far more, infinitely more. It's mind-blowing. I can't fathom it. It's, he's, he's proven it by dying for me, rescuing me from hell and, and bringing me into a forgiven loving relationship with my maker I don't deserve it but he did it he's called me to himself and now he's with me by his spirit and and I know where I'm going I know I'm his and how good he is and that love it's compelling if you know it it's all consuming I don't know if you've seen the movie Inception uh one of the greatest movies ever made in my not so humble opinion, uh, uh, but the, the the theme of it, the the idea behind the movie is that one small idea planted deep within your mind can transform your life. Right, Inception, planting this idea that it'll just change everything, and and when we receive Jesus, God's love is planted in our lives, and from there it starts to blossom and grow, and starts to change our outlook and our decisions and everything about life. Such a powerful thing. It's, it's hard to put into words just the difference that Jesus makes, isn't it? If you've experienced it, and I trust you have experienced it yourself, the joy and the freedom of knowing God, not just as your judge but as your heavenly Father who's cherished you, your steadfast friend who stands with you, your liege and king who is for you and loves you. I mean, if you haven't experienced that for yourself, today's the day to discover it. But that love is compelling. It drives us forward. You think of the word compelling. It's pushing us on, driving us forward. It gets us up in the morning and it helps us recommit each day to him. And it ought to occupy our hearts so that we get on with what he is calling us to. So the fear that we might have because we know what eternity looks like But the love of Christ compels us, the the dual motivation. But what is it that he's calling us to? What is it that should motivate us to do? Well, three things. He's calling us to a new way of living. He's calling us to a new way of looking. And he's given us a new job to do. Being a Christian is all about a new way of living, an alternate lifestyle, if you like. And I'm not thinking of hippies, uh, eating mung beans, living in a yurt together, smoking funny stuff. Not like that. It's not that kind of alternate lifestyle. But it is a new way of living. You see there, Christ's love compels us, verse 14. Why? Because we're convinced that one died for all. I mean, so far, so good. That's just basic gospel truth. Jesus died for us. But get the next bit. And therefore all died. One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. 
He didn't die for us so that we could go on living our own way without him. He died for us because that's what we were doing. And in being our substitute in death, he calls people, he calls you, he calls me, he calls everyone to no longer live for ourselves but for him. I mean, that's just worship, isn't it, that we were talking about two weeks ago, being devoted to him. He calls the shots now. If you look at the people around about us, you know, your colleagues, your classmates, your family, your neighbours, what are they living for? And if you could just sit there and watch them for a bit, what would you what would you conclude that they're living for? For things? For pleasure? For money? For career? For family? For adventure and thrills? Hopeless things. Things that are all destined to perish. Or, or maybe you might look at some of them and think, well, they've got nothing to live for at all. They're just depressed and down. That's just as hopeless. There's only one person worth living for who holds all the riches of glory and who will never let you down. Jesus Christ. He's who life is all about. Enjoying some of those other things, perhaps, but only relative to him and in a way that's shaped by him, in a way that pleases him. It's a radically different way of living. But he also calls us to a new way of looking. Uh, it's like with these things. I don't know if you ever seen these pictures. You recall them? They were really big and popular in the uh, in the nineties. Uh, they're magic eye pictures. Uh, anyone remember them? Yeah. Uh, were you ever frustrated you could never do them? You know, and you're like, what What are people raving on about? How is that the Statue of Liberty? Right, which it is. Or that one there, it's a, it's a lion. Uh, and you're looking and thinking, no, it's not. It's just this weird abstract art. Uh, it's computer-generated abstract art. Uh, and uh, they're actually a 3D image embedded in it by the computer. But you have to learn new ways of looking at it to be able to see it. And it's mind-bending and it can give you a headache to do it. Uh, and unless you're told how to do it, it will always just look like a weird pattern. Uh, it may still look like that to some of you, but you can learn. Well, there's three different tricks they teach you if you want to be able to see the 3D line that's in there. Uh, blur your eyes and sort of squint. Uh, that can work. I mean, it works way better if it's on a page in front of you. Uh, stare through the page as if you're looking to something beyond the page is the, is the second trick. Or the last last one is... Put the page right up close in front of your eyes and start moving it back. And your eyes go cross-eyed looking at it and all of a sudden this image leaps out at you. And if you do it right, suddenly it makes sense. You can see it, you know. It's a lion. It's a statue of liberty. And not only that picture but but other 3D images. Um, People who can't do it, they get really frustrated with you. What are you staring at? It's, you know, kind of thing. They even get angry staring at you. Like, but it's so good. And you go, <laughs> they get ticked off. They can't see what we can if you can see it. Now, Jesus doesn't teach us new tricks about going cross eyed, um, but he does call us to a new way of looking, a fresh way of looking at people, a new way of looking at the world a new way of looking at the people around us. Verse 16, From now on, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. 
We've got a different perspective, a different way of looking. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Behold, see, look. You know, the the normal kinds of ways that people use to look at each other, don't you? The, The kinds of categories they put other people into. Fat, thin, ugly, good-looking, interesting, boring, cool, weird. I've found it very hard going through life, always being thought of as thin and good-looking and cool and (laughs) as if. But but that's just the way that people look at others, isn't it? They they categorise them by these kind of worldly things, judging by externals, judging by things that have no real significance and certainly not of eternal significance. Things that aren't even going to last in this life. We're all going to turn into flabby, graying, wrinkly old men or old ladies. You'll get there one day, you know, so, uh, and I'm well on my way. But Jesus calls his people to a new way of looking at others, a new way of categorising people in Christ or not. New creation, old creation, forgiven, unforgiven, safe from judgment, facing judgment. That's what really matters. That's all that matters. And so we have a new way of living for him and not for ourselves. We've got a new way of looking at people in Christ or not. And we've got a new job description. It's in verse 16. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Sorry, verse 18. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We go around and say, be reconciled to God. You are are not at peace with him and you need to be and you can be. And you know what an ambassador is. Perhaps you remember Les Patterson, Australia's cultural ambassador, beer drinking, beer gut, kind of uh, Barry Humphrey's character, uh, very funny. Perhaps you've heard commentators hold up a sports star as an ambassador for cricket or ambassador for netball or ambassador. I hope the Australian Olympic team are not cultural ambassadors for us. Have you seen them interviewed? They're either giggling or they're swearing their heads off. On uh, My daughter's watching. I'm going to turn off the interview with the Australians. Uh, But a real ambassador is a political appointment. Arthur Sinodinus is the Australian ambassador to the United States of America. He's the official representative for us to them, communicating policy, providing information, helping Australians who are over there and helping non-Australians with their inquiries about coming here. That's what we are. But we're not representatives of Australia. We're representatives of heaven. We're representatives of our Lord and Saviour Christ. We're representatives of God. And as representatives, God has given us a message to persuade people of there in the second half of verse 20. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
because he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. No no one's ever going to get to heaven by seeing a Christian live a godly life alone. You could be the best neighbour right, all your life, right, kind to everyone. That won't help someone get to heaven. They need the message. You can't be reconciled to God without hearing the gospel and taking it on board. See, being ambassadors for Christ isn't just something that super special Christians like Amy Stevens do in Argentina or Matt Bales in Liverpool working with Muslims who are out there and they're great at it and we can send them off and we can pray for them and we can pay for them. We certainly should be doing that. But ambassadors for Christ is something that all Christians are and should be working on. There's no time when you don't represent Jesus Christ, right? You could be a bad ambassador, you could be a good ambassador, but you're representing, right? There's, at, at home, while you're shopping, while you're interacting with clients or bosses in class, at work, on the phone to mum, you're always a representative. But having said that, you might think, well, that might mean to be an ambassador of Christ, I have to be some sort of lone ranger, an expert, uh, and that but that's not right. It's not something that I've got to do alone. We're in it together. It's more that we're an embassy than just an ambassador, right? We're in it together. And, and I don't even mean that Christ is with us, which he is. But at a human level, we don't have to go it alone. One of the beauties of the way that God's organised us into churches is that we do it together. We're ambassadors together. Even Paul, as the greatest missionary in history, and the great missionary that he was, he didn't do it alone. Did you notice in our passage here, he's talking about we. We are ambassadors. Who's he referring to? Well, the bunch of jokers who are writing the letter, if you go back to the starters. You know, Paul, Timothy, Silas, often Sosthenes. Um, that, to him, not him alone. I mean, Sosthenes, there's no record of him ever speaking to anyone, but he's the guy that wrote down Paul's letters, Right? He took dictation, right? Paul didn't pen them, except maybe some of the greetings at the end. He says, see how I'm writing this in my own hand and the letters have changed to the original recipient. But, you know, they're in it together. They're working together on this project. It was a partnership, a team effort. Not all of us are gifted evangelists who seem to just get into those conversations all the time and are full of confidence and seem to have the answers to every objection and every question. I mean, there are, they can be really annoying people, can't they? Uh, or you can think, man, man, if I could just do that, then I'd be out there doing it. We're not all like that, but but team had a, Paul had a team around him to support him uh, in the work who were in it together. And as a church, we, we do have those people. And I thank God that we have those people. They can inspire us. And maybe they can teach us something because they didn't start that way, right? What did they learn? How did they go about it? And what did they do to learn the answers? Uh, but we are all called to have an answer for the hope that God has given us. 1 Peter 3.15 talks about that. right? We all might not be gifted evangelists, but we've all got to have a reason for the hope that we have, that we can give an answer. But that's one way we do it together, is learn from those who are good at it. But there's more to it. We, we do it together as we pray for each other's friends and neighbours and colleagues and children to come to Christ. We do it together as we introduce our non-believing 
friends and people in our lives to our Christian brothers and sisters and we start to, to mix them together because some of us are good at making connections but others are good at explaining and answering questions and some are good at just you know making the cup of tea while they have that conversation over there. <laughs> we do it as we plan together. One of the things that we agreed upon as a church 12 years ago to do was to focus second term every year on just on outreach, to do nothing else, just do outreach. We don't do one week of mission. We don't do one month of mission. We do a school term of mission. Now, we're on about evangelism all the time, but here's the dedicated time. And so first term we say, whatever you do, don't bring your friend to church because we're praying for them and we're talking about them and we're working out how we're going to do it. And then second term, it's all on with events and things. Uh, it starts with Easter and it's great. And we've seen something like 80 people come to Christ in the years we've been doing that. And when you go around talking to other churches about you know, people they're seeing come to Christ, it's, it's far smaller than that. And I suspect it's because they really aren't trying. Because everyone's got a God-shaped hole in their life and only God can fill it. And sometimes we've just got to be brave about it. And when we do something special like that together, it's incredible what God does. Praise God for his mercy. But it means when we do that, that we can use all of our talents and skills and gifts that we each have in a focused way together. Some people are good at organising stuff. Some people are good at catering, some are good at decorating, some are talking, some are great at inviting. Others, like I said, are good at talking to other people's friends because they don't have any themselves. <laughs> but the fantastic thing is that we all get together to work with common purpose on it. And we're planning, now that we're coming out of COVID and really struggled in the last couple of years to, to think about how we go about outreach, that we're going to reinvigorate it this year and uh, we're just planning some wonderful things. We do it together as we pray and commission and send SRE teachers into the schools and into ministries like ESL and Playgroup and Break the Cycle to engage with new people. We're in it together. And so as we make a fresh start as a church, let's reassess and refocus and recommit to this ministry that God has left us here to do to call a world in darkness into his wonderful light and to the life that he's offering in Christ. It's the reason he's not come back yet. And it's why he is building his church, that we might declare his praises. We're still here, and while ever we are here, our mission is to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus. Father, this is an incredible purpose that you have and it's incredible to think that you have not wound up the world for this reason that more might come to know you we know that you have your elect out there who are yet to come to christ we pray that we might be on about your business help us to overcome our fears help us to uh, stop navel gazing as a church if we've been doing that and we pray that we be on about winning a world and showing them the light and the glory and the hope and the joy and the life that's in Christ Jesus, that he might be honoured, that people might come to him and praise him on the day that he visits us. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.